Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually consciously living today. Here's your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Our time to open our hearts and our minds to the infinite. It's a time where we look at yoga as a path to spiritually conscious living and as a practice, looking at it in its depth and its breadth, a way that we can uh, live a spiritually conscious, fulfilled life today. And our topic today is right on target for that, living the four aims. And we're going to be taking a look at the life of Paramahansa Yogananda. Uh, Yogananda, of course, is revered by many uh, all over the world, and um, many became acquainted with him through his um, classic text, The Autobiography of a Yogi. And today we're blessed to be joined by uh, Philip Goldberg, who has written, well, I don't know if we could call it a sequel, but it's... Um, <laughs> The Life of Yogananda, the story of the yogi who became the first modern guru, and it's really an in-depth book about um, the way that Yogananda lived and the way his life uh, unfolded, and it's going to be a great source for us looking at, you know, how we can see someone actually living their dharma and putting these uh, laws of life uh, into work. Philip Goldberg uh, is the author of numerous uh, other books, including American Veda from Emerson and the Beatles to Yoga and Meditation, How Indian Spirituality Changed the West. He's a public speaker and workshop leader, spiritual counselor, meditation teacher, and ordained interfaith minister. He also co-hosts Spirit Matters podcast and leads American Veda tours, and he blogs regularly on Elephant Journal and Spirituality and Health. His websites are philipgoldberg.com and spiritmatterstalk.com. And I should add to his his list of wonderful things in his life that he's a dear friend, so I'm really happy to be welcoming uh, you back to the Yoga Hour film. Glad you could Great be here. to be with you, as always. And we should point out, since you mentioned the Spirit Matters podcast, that the the latest interview posted on the podcast is with you. Oh, that is fabulous. Thank you for bringing that up. It was a great conversation with you and Dennis, um, as as always on Spirit Matters. So yeah, please take a look at that one too, spiritmatterstalk.com. And um, before we launch into talking about the Purshartas, the four goals of life, and, and how you could really see them 
um, in the life of Paramahansa Yogananda in ways that can be helpful to us for understanding them and being inspired by his life. Let's, let's just start with a moment of centering meditation. Let's take a breath and let it out and be conscious of that felt sense of breathing, of being present in this moment here and now. Let's think of it as a, a yoga moment a moment of bringing our body, our mind, our essence of being together, which is really what yoga is. The sense of union is conscious union, being awake, being aware, right where we are. So let's have a yoga moment now and feel the breath coming in, feel the breath moving out again, And with the in-breath, direct your attention within. And just let go of external stimulation now. And also let go of thoughts about the past or the future. And really allow your attention to be anchored in the moment, in this now moment in this yoga moment, feel the breath, just be here, breathing in, breathing out. And in a simple moment like this, when we begin to simply return to the center of our being, to return to what is known as the divine self, we notice that the breath becomes a little slower. The mental field starts to clear. And we can feel an expansive sense of being. And that is where peace abides. No matter what circumstances are around us, there's always that peace within us. So we begin our time together this morning acknowledging that peace and inviting it to pervade the mental field and to refresh our bodies. So let's take that peace now, awareness of that peace and with our out breath, feel that we just stretch out into a peaceful day before us. Share that peace with everyone you meet today. Peace, peace, peace. Phil, once again, welcome back to the Yoga Hour. And 
um, we just celebrated, I'm sure you're aware, the 126th birth anniversary of Paramahansa Yogananda. And so it's a beautiful time, of course, always a good time to have you back on Yoga Hour, but especially meaningful now, as we know many people around the world um, consider that an auspicious day, in a sense, a holy day, as we um, do and uh, did celebrate at Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, um, his birth anniversary. And uh, so it's a good time to hold up your book, The Life of Yogananda, which gives us so much uh, information and insight, really, about his life. One of the things I really appreciated about your book, um, well, of course, I love your writing style, which I find to be really um, compelling, um, is that you can write about historical things, but in a way that um, is is profoundly interesting and uh, sometimes humorous. That just sort of comes through, but always uh, deep. And so here, um, in the life of Yogananda, you're giving us a glimpse of his life that we didn't get to see in his autobiography and uh, telling us some stories that many of us hadn't heard before. Um, so let's just start with how this journey of um, the life of Yogananda has been received uh, in the world um, how's that experience been um, going and talking to people about the life of Yogananda? What have you discovered in that process? Well, one of the things I discovered personally was how much I learned from researching and writing the book. You know, when you're immersed in it, you don't quite realize it, and then you have to talk about it and, and answer questions. And I realized um, there's it's not just um, a g- compelling story uh, you know a life narrative but it's there are lessons for all of us to to learn from there and i i didn't realize till after i wrote it mm-hmm. how much i learned from it and um how much um uh, influence it can have on my life when i remember certain things uh the other thing is um it it's been received in a, a way i'm very grateful for um, uh, people who didn't know much about Yogananda beyond reading Autobiography of a Yogi uh, have told me they they learned a tremendous amount. And even more satisfying is people, well, like you and, and others, who um, know a lot about Yogananda's life and who have studied it and who have been formal students or disciples of his. They tell me they've learned a lot. So you you know when you do the kind of research I do did you you end up um, uncovering a lot of information and putting it into context and um, so that's been very satisfying. I uh, yeah thank you and I, of course I thank you for writing the book and um, you know one of the things of course that I um, discovered reading the book you know when you when you read the autobiography of a yogi there. Are, um, you can kind of get a felt sense of um, conditions in his life, you know, as he's uh, living out his dharma or his higher purpose. But when we read your book and um, some of the historical information that you include in there, you really get a view of, um, you know, not only Yogananda as the saint and as the aspiring yogi, but Yogananda, the human being, Yogananda, the organizational leader, 
And um, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you specifically about the Purusharthas, about the four aims of life as we see um, reflected in Yogananda's life. Um, for example, um, you know, he, you know, he, he so masterfully um, exhibited his executive abilities, um, you know, really, um, you know, founding this organization in America and, uh, you know, building temples and uh, setting up groups and starting publications. And, you know, he was so prolific. And, uh, you know, there's a sense, I think, that we have of thinking, well, you know, he was a mighty yogi, and of course, he could do those things. And, you know, it was easier for him. But, you know, when when you read your book, you see, no, actually, in many ways, it was not easier for him. Um, conditions were not um, particularly friendly <laughs> for him to do the work that he that he did. So um, tell us a little bit about how you see, um, you know, Yogananda unfolding his his dharma uh, in this lifetime, you know, what became obvious to you about it? Well, I think the first thing to be said in the context of the uh, four aims of life, one of which is Dharma, is um, he's an illustration of the value and importance of identifying and following your Dharma. In his case, it was obvious at childhood. I mean, he, he, he discerned that Dharmic path very early in life and... Um, and you see signs of it even even as a kid, um, and especially when he's an adolescent, he's he's become a spiritual leader among his friends. You know, uh, starting an ashram at 15, and you know, leading satsangs even prior to that. So you know, that was pretty much clear. He had to um, overcome family uh, opposition. <laughs> <laughs> to his becoming a monk and all that, but you know it, it it illustrates the value of you know sticking to the Dharma that you identify as your own. That's Sva Dharma. Um, and then when he was uh, carrying out his mission in the U.S., um, as you suggested, um, it was hard work. He uh, had to overcome tremendous obstacles and opposition. He had setbacks. He had disappointments. He, you know, there were uh, the ups and downs, the victories and defeats um, that life presents to all of us. And, and it's a great illustration that even if you're a, a great yogi, um, you're still in the, you're functioning in the world and in these kind of capacities and and he was running an organization like an entrepreneur or a CEO might only without um, only on a spiritual mission not a, a financial one uh, but still he had money problems he had to pay the bills and you know people and and part of some of his work you know a, a third of his time in America was spent here during the Great Depression so you know there were tremendous challenges he had to deal with the racism and bigotry and all kinds of uh social you know symptoms of of social dysfunction in America at that time especially so uh our our 
sense that life must have been easy for somebody as of his spiritual stature isn't quite accurate. What's right. going on? And it's inside? kind of like you know, when I look at Is his life, different? I see, um, you know, sort of like the big screen, um, um, you know, images of of this unfoldment, you know, of of a yogic life. And you know, you you were mentioning that it, his dharma, his his purpose in life, and even his individual expression of that um, was obvious in his childhood. And um, and he knew it. I think was was the is a key piece of that that we could see. You know that he persevered in knowing. You know what his path was about. Um, I often um, see. You know, as I've been exploring um, these uh, four aims of life, and you know, recently in in my book, The Jewel of Abundance, um, have been focused on Arta. And thanks again for writing the foreword, by the way. Um, one of the things that I've seen is that it it, it appears that Dharma is very often um, shows itself in childhood, and uh, you know that that the the portents of you know what we are uh, those kind of soul qualities that are going to be expressed in our life seem to be there early on. Now the difference, perhaps, with an awakened. Uh, being like Paramahansa Yogananda is that he knew it, you know, he knew it early on. And for others of us that the signs are there, um, but we don't necessarily uh, know them. And so I'm wondering about your life, Phil, you know, um, in your childhood, you know, were you writing early on? Were there signs of your, of your Dharma when, when you were uh, a child? If, um, the signs were obvious. I should have been Sandy Koufax. <laughs> <laughs> I would, all the signs pointed to a career in baseball or something like that for, for me as a kid. But looking back, you could say that. I read at a precocious age, mm-hmm. my, you know, thanks to the New York Public Library. And uh, my mother who would, you know, take me there. So I, I was always reading. Um, mm-hmm. The writing part of it didn't come into play until, you know, much later, of course, when uh, I realized in retrospect, because I didn't take up professional writing uh, right away. Uh, I went through a lot of confusion about my own dharma uh, in my uh late teens and early 20s until I finally realized, you know, I I need to write. I should be writing. One of the signs was when I looked back at my college career, I realized I didn't work very hard. I was bored with most of my classes. The only thing that turned me on and what got me good grades despite not studying as hard as I should have was I wrote well. Mm-hmm. Regardless, whatever the subject was, I could turn in a coherent essay or a term paper uh, at, that made it 
you know, seem like I knew what I was talking about. And, <laughs> well, and so I, have to, I have to confess skill. that I share that with you. Um, and, and of course, I'm a, a writer as well. And, and that's, I think, part of discovering that skill. Um, so I'm just sort of saying it kind of chagrined about, you know, getting through college that way. But, um, but that's exactly what I mean, because I think many people, um, you know, approach this, um, question of their dharma and you know we have higher purpose like you're here to wake up and then we have swadharma you know okay what you're here to express and um it's not as clear um to many people as it was to paramansa yogananda but i think as adults you know once we kind of find our place and then we look back you know we can see how certain of those qualities that are going to unfold, you know, later on in our life were there in, in the beginning. So I can somehow see you in the New York public library researching, you know, as you, as you did, you know, so, um, powerfully for this book. And, um, you know, I look in my own life and I see, um, you know, many of those things that I did as a child, um, sort of blossomed into the expression, you know, that became my dharma. And um, so when we get uh, back from the break, um, let's talk about um, Arta, um, because you mentioned how uh, Yogananda, um, in terms of expressing his dharma, you know, he had to find out how to... Um, get the resources to do that. And that's true for all of us, isn't it? <laughs> it sure is. Yeah, it looks like we have uh, another couple minutes here. So um, uh, let me add something about Dharma, because I know a lot of people struggle with it. And I've seen it over the years. I saw it in myself early on. Um, and I see it in a lot of other people. You know, we live in a complex society. In the old days, Dharma was you know, one's own personal dharma was a lot easier to discern. It was, in fact, given. You know, society was simple. People had different roles. There weren't, you know, this infinity of choices before us. Um, and people in certain families did certain things. And now it's, you know, people can be pretty much anything. So it's very hard to necessarily discern what, what your path is, what your dharmic path is, as opposed to what you're receiving from the outside and what is fantasy and what is wish fulfillment. And so people struggle with it a lot more now than they, they would have in the past. And it, 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 it requires a level of discernment and self-reflection that is a, a, a very worth while undertaking and it has to be done but it's not necessarily always easy probably easier than we think it is if we really tune in to to our own inner uh voice yeah and yeah exactly I and mean, that's such a good point about the times that we live in and how much information is available to us um, but also, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, if we can look at the times that we're living in as a time of awakening, uh, you know, awakening of consciousness, that there is more consideration um, given to 
living with purpose. You know, as you say, in the past, it was kind of like, you know, you had a station in life and um, perhaps you worked in the family business or, you know, you, you, you did what was laid out for you with your, your family or your culture. Um, so there was a lot of that. And, and today we see um, more of the uh, idea that, you know, your potential can be expressed and, and is up to you to explore, you know, what that, what that might be. So that's one of the reasons that, you know, I'm, I have been looking for ways to support people and how to identify that. And, um, you know, one of the ways is that I think it's, it's, um, it's better not to get, um, not to confuse Dharma with, uh, a job, with a vocation, mm-hmm. not, to, mm-hmm. not to start there. Like, okay, what am I going to do? <laughs> um, because as you say, you know, those things, those potentials are just infinite, um, today, but to, but to really do more soul searching about, you know, what are those innate, um, divine qualities, you know, in my life that have always been there, you know, what, what, what makes my soul sing with joy? You know, what has heart and meaning for me or what, you know, as you were describing, (laughs) discovering in college, you know, what, what in a sense, in a way comes easy for me, right? Mm. You know, um, and feels natural. Yeah, exactly. That's a better word, I think. I don't know that the term papers were necessarily easy, but it was sort of no, natural. They <laughs> and, um, but they were so engaging. Th- they were absorbing, even if I you know, didn't particularly want to do it. Uh, once, once I got started, they, they engaged me in a, in a way that uh, you know, other tasks did not because it involved messing around with words and ideas, which was obviously dharmic for me. But <clears throat> I couldn't tell that at the time. I, you know, I, there were other imperatives. But, the, you know, that Joseph Campbell, famous line of Joseph Campbell, to follow your bliss. Yeah. It's often, you know, understood in a very superficial way. But if you look at it in a deep way of, you know, a word like bliss, meaning, you know, ananda, the the deepest conceivable satisfaction or um, fulfillment, um, that which produces a taste of that should be paid attention to. Oh, that's such a beautiful uh, way of looking at it, Phil, that, you know, in this sense of what is it that we do that that gives us a taste of that, you know, not so much um, pleasure as we thought of bliss, but of of that peace of the soul, that um, deep sense of contentment um, and and inner joy. Um, Thanks so much. That was great insights about Dharma. And when we get back from the break, then... Um, we can talk about Arta. You know, how did how did Yogananda's life express that second goal of uh, wealth, of really being able to discover those resources that um, allowed him to fulfill his dharma, his swadharma? You're listening to the Yoga Hour with special guest Philip Goldberg, author of numerous books, including American Veda and his most recent one, which we're discussing today, The Life of Yogananda, the story of the yogi who became the first modern guru. He also co-hosts Spirit Matters podcast 
and find out more about Phil at philipgoldberg.com. We'll be right back with you. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach around the world, we depend on the generosity of listeners like you. If you enjoy the programming, please make your donation today by going to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment with Catherine Ponder, taken from a classic talk called The Prosperous Truth, recorded at Unity of Austin in 1991. God is extravagant supply. Get that, extravagant. God is extravagant supply. He brings forth the best robe. He spreads the banquet table, as we saw last night, with good things on which we may feast. He overflows our cup. He opens the windows of heaven and pours out a blessing. And then this is what that Unity Correspondence Course said. Why are you satisfied with such meager living when you may have so much? To find out more about Unity teachings, visit unity.org. Unity is proud to announce the first-ever New Thought Walden Awards, honoring 27 leaders who are helping to change the world. Some are well-known, but most are unsung heroes. They care about spirituality, healing, interfaith understanding, caring for the earth, and social activism. Read about them in the September-October edition of Unity Magazine, or go online to waldenawards.com. Congratulations to all. Give someone you love the gift of inspiration with a subscription to Unity Magazine. Each issue has interesting articles and compelling interviews from some of today's most prominent spiritual thought leaders. Explore new ideas in health, science, spirituality, and a lot more. Send gifts to your family and friends and save $7 off the subscription rate. Get a one-year subscription for just $14.95. This offer ends on December 31st, so go to unity.org to find out more. Discover the wisdom of Charles Fillmore and other legendary Unity teachers with Reverend Bob Brock and Unity Classic Radio. Every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Central, Bob shares original radio transcripts from the Unity archives with truth students worldwide. Explore these timeless teachings and learn how to apply them to your life today. Listen live or on demand. You can also connect with Reverend Bob on his Unity in Action Facebook page. Tune in every Tuesday here on unityonlineradio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. You're listening to The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way with your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome back to The Yoga Hour. I'm Ellen Grace O'Brien, and um, we're talking today with Philip Goldberg, author of 
American Veda and his latest book, The Life of Yogananda, the story of the yogi who became the first modern guru. Phil's websites are philipgoldberg.com and spiritmatterstalk.com. And as Phil mentioned when when, uh, we began, um, if you go to spiritmatterstalk.com, you can find uh, the latest um, podcast there where Phil and I and Dennis Ramundi, his uh, co-host, had a great conversation about ARTA, which is our topic now in the second segment of the program. So we were talking about Dharma in the beginning, how to live a purposeful life, how to know your life purpose and express it, and for Yogananda, how that um, really showed early on and how he was clear about um, his life as a um as a yogi, you know, and as a, a spiritually awakened being, and that his life purpose, in a sense, was um, as was predicted for him in his youth, a mighty engine who would bring many souls to God, which uh, which he did. But um, in this part, we want to talk about it wasn't necessarily easy, right, Phil, <laughs> in terms of um, uh, how to practically put that. Um, into expression, you know, how to build an organization that would help him uh, reach people, um, how to innovate uh, the many ideas that he had, you know, putting together lessons and going around touring. And um, so what about this second goal of life, art or wealth, um, being able to cultivate the resources that we need to do what we're inspired to do. What did that look like for Paramahansa Yogananda? Well, the first thing that needs to be said is that in in his case, um, the, the big distinction <clears throat> between him and probably everybody listening is that he was a monk. He had taken vows of renunciation as a swami, as a young man, and was inclined toward renunciation even as a child. You know, his parents, his father, uh, had a, could have set him up in a very well-paying, good career in the uh, British railway system at the time, and, you know, they tried to arrange marriage for him three times, and it just wasn't his dharma. So he he eventually, you know, took those vows. So the subject of arta in the sense of personal prosperity or family wealth does not apply to him and if he were the kind of renunciate who go went off to live in a cave or in a simple ashram such concerns would have been minimal or not existent except for you know having food to eat um but he had a mission in the world that was as i said before comparable to that of you know, any entrepreneur or CEO, and it was a a mission with a high calling, one to which he was completely dedicated and um, uh, to which he applied, you know, tremendous zest and energy and time and effort, Um, while, of course, never compromising on his the spiritual dimension of life, which was his highest priority. And he learned very quickly that in order to uh, fulfill that mission, 
um, he had to pay attention to things that were not necessarily um, things he cared about or wanted to deal with, such as money and uh, supporting and and building and supporting and growing an organization. He was not inclined to organizational life. He used to call them hornet's nests. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. any of us. I remember I remember the story from the autobiography of his guru, uh, Sri Yukteswar, in a sense accusing him of um, selfishness um, yeah. in, in terms of the idea of uh, rejecting organization in that way, you know, basically educating him, you know, how are other people going to find this teaching, you know, if you're not willing um, to support organizational work. Right, and Sri Yukteswar was a role model in that sense because um, he had, a, it was a small organization relative to what Yogananda built in the West, but he still had a, you know, he had buildings and or, you know, people and People had to be fed and, you know, all the rest of it. And uh, that was a necessity. And Yogananda had to adapt to that. And he had to adapt to uh, the the way that's done in America, which is very different from India. And so following his, you know, uh, progress in that way, um, there are lessons to be learned there. But we should not think that because, you know, we're yogis, um, it will necessarily come easily. For one thing, uh, Yogananda is a great role model for um, the fact that it doesn't necessarily come easy because, you know, we all have our karma, and our karma gets mixed up with the karma of all the people we associate with, and the karma of the the uh, community and of the nation and the times we live in, and you know he lived he came here in the 1920s. Uh, it was a prosperous time in America, but then came the crash and the depression and hard times. And the very fact, and this is interesting because you you see in his work. Um, Tremendous struggle financially. He was always worried about money. Would the, would the you know mortgage and the, this and you know could they grow? Could they establish the centers they need? And even later in his life, would the organization be on a sound financial footing to survive and perpetuate his work after he's gone? Um, so he had these concerns always, and people are often surprised by that, but. You know, he was running an organization, and he had to think about those things. And during the Depression especially, uh, it was hard to uh, keep the organization afloat and pay the bills and feed people and all that. And when you, But when you think about it, the fact is um, he, it not only survived, but it grew during the Depression. And... You know, great business minds, moguls, tycoons were, some of them did very well during the Depression, but many businesses failed, and many business leaders, these great experts, uh, fell flat on their face. So the mere fact that he survived and the organization grew is a great, despite, you know, the struggle, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and what, what, that's so true. And, you know, do you have a thought about, I mean, besides, besides his elevated consciousness and living out his purpose, not, and I, I, I like what you said about through it all, he, he didn't compromise his dharma, which I think is key to understanding the role of Arta. So it was, it was never about, you know, just finding ways to make money, right? Um, it right. was never no, about course. finding ways to prosper in America for its own sake. It, it was about how do, you know, we um, find the resources that are needed to fulfill this uh, dharmic uh, vision. And Without so what's your, what is your sense of um, where, why, you know, why did it, thrive? Why did his work thrive in, 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 you know, like what were the agents of his Arta, the agents of his wealth, if, if we could think of it that way? Well, you know, like a lot of visionaries, you know, he was a monk with a spiritual mission, but in, in one sense, it's comparable to other visionaries who are, you know, starting companies, whether it's, you know, Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Thomas Edison or whoever. They're not necessarily, uh, they don't necessarily have all the skills that are involved to fulfill their vision, so they need to gather around them the right people. And that's part of their success stories. And often it's people who understand money, people who understand finance, people who understand, you know, how to. Uh, pay the bills and raise money and make, you know, grow money and all those kinds of things that many, you know, people are not um, good at or uh, trained in. Mm -hmm. And he had those people. He had people around him, devotees, uh, who bought into the mission, cared about the mission, were devoted to him and helping him. And those people uh, came, you know, stepped up to the plate, not only by writing checks, but by handling the finances and getting the paperwork done and doing the legal things that had to be done and all the rest of it that, of course, he would not have known how to do. But he was the guiding light, and Mm -hmm. he served that role. But having, you know, those people around, especially certain people, key people who were incredibly generous benefactors. Uh, Without them, I don't know if he could have done it. Uh, You know, it certainly would have been very different. Uh, His his life would have played out differently without those those supportive Mm -hmm. people. That's such a good point, and I and I think if we, you know, and when we look at okay, well, how do we apply that to our own life? What does that mean in terms of what Arta or wealth um, is for us as we're expressing our Dharma in whatever field that we're in? Um, to me, the the key point there is that you know, wealth is not just money, although you know, money is certainly a key element of it, but it. Um, but relationship has a lot to do with it, right? You know, being yeah. open to how it is that um, <clears throat> whatever it is that we're inspired to do um, happens in cooperation, of course, with the infinite, <laughs> with the source, 
and with with all the expressions of the source that are that are here in this world. So um, our our divine friendships are really key to fulfilling our dharma. They're they're part of our arta. They're part of our wealth. So you know even in you know I could say Phil for me in my life you know you are part of the arta of my life. You know a, as a friend and as a colleague. Um, and you know, it's a big thing for me that, that you wrote the foreword to my book. So that's part of the Arta of my book on Arta, Mm. you know, our, our, (laughs) our spiritual friendship. And so, um, you know, if people can find, um, Arta to just thinking about money and where they're going to get money, um, they're really missing the point. You know, it's really about, you know, how, um, you know, we're, we're connected to life in a very deep way that allows this, this energy, um, uh, of higher purpose to express, um, through us and spiritual friendships are, um, and, and colleagues are a critical part of that, don't you think? Yes. And, uh, other relationships, you know, the people have, uh, friendships and family relationships and marriages and, and so forth that are part of our personal wealth. Um, and, you know, I, I, it's not only a source, these are not only sources of great fulfillment and pleasure, can, you know, to, to allude to one of the other uh, aims of life, um, but even with respect to Arta, to, with respect to prosperity, that support system is tremendously important and is part of the the wealth that uh, creates other wealth. Yeah, it's really a good point, and um, and also I think when we look at Arta, we can we can look at other um, elements of it. You know, in Yogananda's life, for example, we could see his inspired creativity as part of his wealth. Um, you know, the ways in which he was uh, innovating, right, how to bring yoga to uh, Americans. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of the things that he did that um, allowed him to, you know, express this dharma, um, but they were part of his wealth, his his inspirations. Could you tell us a little bit about that, what you see with that? Yeah, that's, he's a great example of, um, uh, I always say in American Veda, I made the point that all the successful gurus who came to America, the ones we're familiar with, they all, in their own way, had to um, play this delicate balancing act of adapting the traditional teachings they brought with them from India uh, to the time and place they were teaching in, to America in in Yogananda's case, the 20s, 30s, 40s, in other cases, you know, the 1960s and 70s, um, to adapt the, the language, adapt, you know, the nuances of the teachings and the expression, the delivery systems and so forth of the teachings to this culture, but doing so without compromising the teachings themselves. So they had they held firm to tradition and to what the pragmatic uh, value of the teachings so they were not compromised or diluted. 
and at the same time had to um, adapt them. And Yogananda is a great example of that. So, and and he took flack for it for by from traditionalists for doing things like putting in writing and using a, what was then a new technology called mail order. <laughs> so it would be the equivalent of putting certain teachings on on an app now uh-huh. that were only done only taught verbally from uh, guru to student and he made those adaptations so he could reach more people at the same time he held firm to certain things that w- would not be compromised because if by doing so would dilute the teachings and this was as you say an expression of his own creativity but it's also uh, a, an adherence to the highest aspects of dharma it would have been compromising his dharma to to dilute the teachings in, in certain ways and and which brings up another point which is the interaction of the four purushottras the the aims of life they all interact with each other we're bringing that out as we converse about this you know if you follow your dharma wealth and prosperity in this all senses is more likely to come to you which will give you the uh, foundation for pleasure which is another aim of life and make more uh, make easier and smoother your path to moksha mm-hmm. yeah and if you pursue moksha through your spiritual practices through your sadhana then your dharma will be more discernible and easier it's to follow. Tr- Prosperity will have follow. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that in. And of course, in the foreword that you wrote for my book, uh, The Jewel of Abundance, you, you talked about these four aims of life, like the legs of a table. And it's such a beautiful metaphor um, for how the four aims work together and um and how they're intertwined and, you know, one being out of balance or one left out, you know, you don't have that uh, stability uh, in your life. And um, just briefly touching on the, on the, on the other two, um, I know that, you know, we can see, and you gave us some glimpses in your book too, that, that Yogananda never lost touch with his joy you know, we, there's a very playful side to this saint. And even though he worked um, long hours, he was very focused, worked hard um, to develop this this art of this wealth um, to express uh, the work that he was here to do. Um, he still played. Yes. He had a lot of fun. He loved certain, he took pleasure in life. Um certain things in life especially he lo- he went to the movies he loved music he loved to travel and see new places and sightsee uh he liked practical jokes um you know so th- having fun and in the enjoyments of life the pleasures even in a life as simple as his as a monk um you can take delight in those even uh in the context of, of uh, you know, a mission that had to be accomplished and uh, higher spiritual goals that were, uh, you know, attained. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, we, if we just did look at it, we can say, you know, a, a dharmic life, uh, a wealthy life um, without joy, without pleasure is not a spiritually um, conscious life. And it's it's not a wealthy life at all, you know, that it, it's really necessary to be in touch with joy and certainly to have room for that in our life and um, to not um, try to put it off, you know, that it needs to be in its proper place. That's why it's one of the four aims. And, and of course, um, you know, Yogananda never lost uh, sight of that great goal of moksha or the liberation of consciousness um, in his own life and in his intention to hold that up um, for people as the ultimate goal of life that we're here um, for self and God uh, realization. So Phil, I, I know that you have to, um, I think you're hurrying off to a podcast or a program or something this morning. So, <laughs> I'm doing a Facebook uh, Live. Okay, great. So I, I want to hour. thank you um, again for being back with me on the Yoga Hour and to remind people of your um, latest book, The Life of Yogananda, the story of the yogi who became the first modern guru. And um, to invite our, our listeners to visit your websites, philipgoldberg.com and spiritmatterstalk.com. Um, thanks so much for being here this morning, Phil. Oh, it was a joy. It's always a pleasure to be with you and uh, always enjoy the conversation, whether I'm the host or you're the host. <laughs> That's great. And um, you have it brought us some good insights about the four goals of life and uh, how we can see them and learn from them in the life of Yogananda. So I look forward to next time, Phil, and um, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you. May it be prosperous. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. So I'd like to just um, close our program this morning, um, pulling from um, this new book, The Jewel of Abundance. I'm just going to open it up and see what it has to tell us this morning. I opened up to page 14, The Ancient Question. The universal question found in sacred texts throughout time is one that resounds in every awakening heart. Does material prosperity enhance and support or distract and destroy our spiritual life? It's a question well worth asking. Both the ancient and present day answer is, it depends. There's a tension an inner conflict that arises alongside our innate tendency to thrive as timeless as the impulse itself. This tension is reflected in the abundance of spiritual or religious teachings that either praise wealth as a demonstration of goodness or warn us of its evil nature. Many sources do both at the same time. Plenty of religious dogma touts the dangers of money, all the while praising those who give generously. Even the Vedic texts that shine a bright light on the value of wealth and the necessity to acquire and use it also point out its shadow side. One verse says, not to know the importance of wealth is to remain in darkness. To have knowledge of the primacy of wealth is to have the light of understanding. 
Then another one <laughs> warns us, the wise look upon wealth as productive only of pain and neither aspire for it nor do they grieve at the loss of it. It's confounding. What is the right relationship between prosperity and spirituality? And is there one? We don't have to look far to see how wealth in general and money in particular has garnered a bad name. We live in an out-of-balance world where massive, incomprehensible wealth is concentrated in a few hands while millions go without the most basic human needs for food, clean water, and shelter. Corporate greed, which could be defined as choosing unbridled economic expansion over the health and well-being of people and the planet, is only too familiar. The United States is measured as the wealthiest nation in the world, yet we are not the happiest. We stand in awe of self-made millionaires who invent the latest technological breakthrough in their garage. We applaud the entrepreneurial spirit that successfully prospers. We are inspired by the talent and wealth of sports heroes, movie stars, best-selling authors, and TED-talking CEOs. But at the same time, we honor those like Mother Teresa and Cesar Chavez, who's, who choose lives of self-denial in order to serve others. As much as we admire wealth, we're inclined to see the latter as the path of genuine spirituality, further widening and reinforcing the gap between wealth and the spiritual life. The question of wealth and spirituality is one we must answer. As we do, we can affirm and demonstrate the evolutionary potential of humanity. The unprecedented humanitarian and environmental crisis we face today pose a critical path for awakening. It's time to change our consciousness about scarcity and wealth. Time to open the floodgates of compassion and generosity. Time to foster a new distribution system, one that provides enough for all to thrive. And I think we've seen that in the life of Paramahansa Yogananda this morning, that his divine mission um, to make teachings accessible to people everywhere and how he brought together the inspired wisdom of Arta to make it happen. So may you prosper in your dharmic life. It's been great to share this yoga hour with you this morning. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry, where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org.